So good to be with all of you. I'm grateful I get to be part of this. Chris Cockrell is one of my students at Biola, and he is an amazing young man, and I was grateful to get to know him when he was there. And now to be part of what God's doing here, I've just learned a little about the history of this school. I want you students to know how amazingly blessed you are, if you're not sure about that, to be at a place like this with people who love you so much and pray for you, and for decades have been creating a place, a subculture here, that helps you to really live for what matters. We can invest our lives in things that don't matter. Every time I get to teach and preach, I often realize, especially when I'm with young people, that you may perceive a massive gap between me and you, and I don't want that gap to be there. And any leader who's honest will tell you that when we lead, it's not because we've arrived. It's just because we're on the way to where we want to go. And so I want you to realize that as I preach this morning, this afternoon, I want us to realize that we're all in this together, that I'm not, not in some different category in growing as a Christian than any of you are. Be first and foremost, I'm a disciple of Jesus. Before I'm a theology professor of a pastor of a church in California, I am a disciple of Jesus. Jesus is everything to me. I grew up in a tough area. I grew up in a, a family that had a lot of struggles, raised by a single mom who was not ready to raise two boys on her own. And so my brother and I didn't have a lot of the things you would hope two boys would have. But the one thing my mother did that was the most important thing was she would sit us on her lap and read the Bible to us. It was a, actually a children's Bible called The Bible and Pictures for Little Eyes. And at some point at a very young age, I became deeply aware of my need for forgiveness, my need for a savior, and that Jesus was that savior I desperately needed. And I trusted him in repentance and saving faith. And he from then has defined my life. Jesus is everything to me. I can remember being a kid in kindergarten, telling my friends about how much they needed Jesus and that I had found all the answers to life I desperately needed in him. And Jesus has been everything to me. So I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a member of my church family, Grace Evangelical Free Church, where yes, I'm a pastor, but I'm one of the flock as well. This is a photograph of some of the people in our church praying for, I yell at Hendren. We have a photograph, I think, of some people in my church. Do we, guys? There we go. The praying for some of the people in my church, we'll just have to go here, as we send her off. And even before I want you to know about my family that I live with every day, I want you to know about my church family. Because my church family is my truest family. Now, I love my family, but, but you know Christians throughout the centuries, when they became Christians, had to say goodbye to their earthly families, a lot of times because they got disowned. Their families didn't want anything to do with them when they became Christians. That's why Jesus says things like, unless you hate your mother and father, you can't be one of mine. What he's saying is, it's not that you hate your mother and father, but your love for me needs to so outweigh your love for even the people you love most that it's not even close. And in my church family, these are the people who will take care of my wife and kids if I die today. These are the people who are my truest family. And if you want to grow as a Christian, it's an incredible blessing to have a school like this. But the local church is the primary place that God has designed to advance his purposes in the world and for us to grow. And you'll be out of here before you know it. 
but you'll be in a local church hopefully the rest of your life. So I just want to show you a picture of some of the folks from my church. I come here under their authority with their blessing and prayer preaching to you now. And these are the dear, amazing people I get to live with every day. This is a photograph of my wife and kids, Donna. Uh, here they are. I don't know if you can see it. Okay, that's my wife, Donna, of 35 years. We just celebrated our 35th anniversary. And we met in high school when we were 16 after the third custody battle, I moved in with my dad and I walked down the senior corridor to my new locker halfway through my junior year of high school. And I looked across and there was Donna, 16 year old Donna. And I was immediately drawn to her. And so I did some, I've got some intel on what was going on with Donna. And I found out that she was dating a guy named John and they were seriously dating. They ended up being class sweethearts in the yearbook, that serious. And I had to wait around, but thankfully, after 18 months, she finally broke up with John. Now, by this time, John and I had become friends. So out of respect for him, when she broke up with him, I waited two weeks. And then I moved in <laughs> like El Nino, and I never looked back. And so, and she is brilliant and gracious and kind and patient and funny. And God's greatest gift to me on a daily basis of showing his love for me in a human being that I get to live with. She's an incredible woman. And then my four kids, Caroline, Paige, Sam, and Isaac, are delightful. And I love my kids dearly. So, and Isaac's actually in the back. He's, he's back there. He came with me on this trip. My youngest here, Isaac, he's an amazing kid. And I love him dearly. But I, wanna, I wanted you to see my church family and my family because I'm a disciple of Jesus, but I'm, I'm a dad and I'm a husband and I'm a neighbor and I'm a son. And I'm a friend and I, like you, I want to live for what really matters, what really lasts. And so I, I, I just don't want you to think I'm the God guy who does this for a living and has nothing to do with what you're going through. I can relate to everything you're going through. I can remember so well the challenges of being in junior high and all the things that went with that. And where I found my identity had to be in Jesus. And, and that's what I want us to think about. So this theme passage that this whole conference this week is based on is an incredible passage. I don't know if you looked at it, but if you have your brochure, it's in there. And I, I want to read it. I want to make sure you don't miss the powerful message in this passage from Philippians 1. So here's the Apostle Paul writing to the Philippians, and he loves them, and he wants them to live for what really matters. So listen to the way he prays for them. He says, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. That's why we're here right now. That's why we've been singing corporate worship together so that we can continue to grow. Yes, express our worship and adoration to God, but so that we continue to learn and understand who he is so that we live for really what matters. So we grow in knowledge and understanding. He says, for I want you to understand what really matters. Oh, I hope you don't want to spend your life on things that don't really matter. We're constantly bombarded with messages to squander our lives that ends up in nothing of lasting value. This is an alarming reality of our day. Social media will, will try to convince you to give your life to things that add up to absolutely nothing. Things that don't matter, things that don't last more than 10 seconds. 
in this world. And we're not intended to live lives of meaninglessness, but lives depending on what really matters and living out what really matters. Paul goes on, for I want you to understand what really matters so that, doesn't end there, so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. Jesus is coming back. Your time in school here is going to be over before you know it. Jesus is going to return. And we'll all stand before him one day. And our lives need to be seen in light of that day that's coming quicker than any of us realize when we'll stand before Jesus and answer to him for how we lived our lives. And those lives should be lives of love, Paul's saying. Lives in purity and blamelessness. That we're living lives, not incurring all of this debt with other people and with God. So that you may live pure and blameless lives till the day of Christ's return. And then he concludes this way. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. What a beautiful term. So when you're saved in Christ, there should be fruit of that salvation. You never work for your salvation, but you do work out your salvation. You don't bring about your salvation, but you do demonstrate the fruit of your salvation. Christians should be distinctive from non-Christians. People who are living for Jesus should have qualitatively different lives, empowered by the Spirit and defined by Christ, that makes us really weird in the best possible way. You know, I, I, I think we so want to fit in and look cool and be accepted and be approved and get affirmation. But Christians just need to realize that being a Christian in a world that's opposed to God is going to make us different. And to some people weird and to some people even bad because we're living for what's good. That's what the Bible says happens with the human condition, that we get so blind that we end up calling evil good and good evil as human beings. And Christians are the ones who know the difference and don't get it twisted. And so the world may look at us as bad people because we're actually living for what's good. And we need the courage to do that. We need the conviction to do that, the boldness to do that. And, and so it's all so we'll bring glory to God and praise to God. Righteous character produced by our life in Jesus. Who we are now is defined by Christ. And I want you to know who you are. I want you to know who you are because I, I'm heartbroken with the heart of a father for young people in our society. In some ways, you've got it easier than any culture that's ever existed in human history as far as convenience and technology and, and, and comfortability. But in some ways, you've got it harder than any culture because the world's telling you, you have to define yourself. Everything about you is something you need to come up with on your own from somewhere inside of you. Instead of depending on your creator to tell you who you are and where your worth comes from and where your dignity comes from and where your meaning comes from, you gotta make it up and live your truth. That sounds freeing, but it's actually a prison that keeps you from living in Christ and in what really matters. And so we, we've got to see the difference between a life of emptiness. King Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and he had everything the world offered, everything. And he says, if you have everything the world offers and you don't have God, you've got nothing. 
You can have everything the world offers and all the pleasures it provides, but it'll all add up to vanity, he says, emptiness, if it's not connected to the things of eternity and God himself. The prophet Jeremiah puts it this way. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, you know who's really got something he's saying? Let him who boasts, who knows and understands God. The Lord says, I am God, the God who practices loving kindness and righteousness and justice on earth. And then he tells us, for I delight in these things, says the Lord. Knowing and understanding God is what life is all about. So how do you have a relationship with God? How do you live a life of meaning? It's in a relationship with God, with your creator. Apart from that, it'll add up to nothing. So how do we do this? We don't do it through our own effort. This is a pride-crushing truth of the Christian message. It's not up to you. It's up to God. And this makes the Christian faith different than every other religion in the world. Every other religion I've ever studied, and I've studied as many as I could, tells us all about what we need to do to earn God's favor. The Christian message is the opposite of that. It's not what we do for God. It's what God has done for us through his son, Jesus. He does it for us. Oh, he meets all the requirements of righteousness and holiness and forgiveness in his son. And we simply trust him in childlike faith. Everything changes. And now he defines our life. And he's not just a very important part of our lives now. He is our life. That's what the Bible says. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. One day when we have faith in Jesus, we will appear with him in glory, not condemned and judged for our sins, but free and forgiven from them because Jesus lived for us and he died for us. Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you. And so there's a passage I want to look at to make sure we get this, that it's not what we do. You guys know who Muhammad Ali is. You remember who he was? He died a few years ago. Muhammad Ali, probably the greatest boxer ever. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So anybody know what his nickname for himself was? He said, I am. He, he, no, he said, I am the greatest was his big self-given nickname. He had lots of other things he called himself. But, but if you looked at Muhammad Ali, you would come away saying, that may be the most confident human I've ever seen. He did not lack confidence. He did not lack what you'd call self-esteem. But I was always intrigued by him. He was a fascinating character. It's hard to imagine someone with more charisma, more, more um, confidence, more ability. It was just amazing what a gifted man he was. But I watched his funeral a few years ago. And his wife got up in his funeral, and I'll never forget what she said. She said, Muhammad woke up every day wondering about his salvation. He wasn't a Christian, and and she said he woke up every day wondering about his salvation. And he would ask, I wonder if I've done enough to go to heaven. He would say, I've got a few more things to do. I've got a lot more to do before I get to go to heaven. Do you know what it says on Muhammad Ali's tombstone? It says this, your service to others is the rent you pay for your room in heaven. Now, some people, I think a lot of people hear that and say, oh, that's cool. That's a cool ethic. That's a cool way to live. Yeah, that'll make you really servant hearted. If you really understand the gospel, which is all by grace, 
and you hear that somebody thinks they need to do a little bit more to get into heaven, they need to pay a little bit more rent to God so they get a room in heaven, it'll feel like a punch in the gut to you, not like a good idea. Because until you get to the end of yourself, your own self-righteousness or self-sufficiency, you'll never get to the feet of Jesus. And so it, it, it should sound completely wrong to us to say, I gotta pay more rent in heaven. How much you gotta pay? You got enough? How big's that room gonna be? When can you be confident? And if you do think you got a nice, spacious apartment waiting for you in heaven because all the good stuff you did, isn't that arrogance? Isn't that pride before a holy God? So let's look at what the Christian message is. Look, look at this passage from Ephesians chapter two. Listen to these words. And you were dead. Dead. This is the condition of every human being. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's talking to Christians in Ephesus, the Apostle Paul is, and he's saying, before you were made alive in Christ, you were dead, spiritually dead, which means you couldn't do anything about your sinful condition. You couldn't solve your sin problem. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, not by doing a few bad things, not by doing a few kinds of bad things, but that's how you boot it up. That's how we all start off in rebellion against God. That's the biblical description of the human dilemma. And if you don't think sin is a real problem in the world, just read the news for two minutes. Just take an honest look in your own heart and tell me we don't have a sin problem in the world, a rebellion against God. We're by nature children of wrath. All we deserve is the judgment and wrath of God, like the rest of mankind. That's as bad as it can get. That's just as bad as it can get. You can't solve this problem. But thank God for verse four. But God, if it weren't for those two words, we'd be done for. I have a sweatshirt a friend of mine gave me that says, but God on it. I, I wear it around sometimes, and every once in a while, a Christian will see it. Like I'll be in Costco, and a guy will say, yes, amen, because they know exactly where this comes from. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. I want to pause here and let you know the first lie we were ever told about God is that he's cheap. First lie we're ever told about God is that he's stingy, that he's holding back from us, that he's not going to take care of us. He's not going to give us what we really need. And so it's so vital for us to realize how untrue that is. Think about where that lie came from. Genesis chapter three, Satan comes in the garden. He talks to Adam and Eve. And what does he say? So you can't eat of the trees in the garden, huh? And Eve calls him on it and says, no, actually, we can eat of all the trees in the garden, just not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, God says, I'll provide for you abundantly, but just leave truth about what right, what's right and wrong to me. You don't get to decide that. And what does Satan say? Uh-huh, he's holding out on you. You better go fend for yourself. You better take care of things yourself. And look how untrue that is. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Is that beautiful? If you've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus, that's true of you. And if you haven't, I want you to see what you're missing. 
I don't want you to miss the immeasurable riches of God's grace. I don't want you to miss the forgiveness and the righteousness that sits in, in yours. You can be completely forgiven of all your sin if you trust Jesus in saving faith. And not only that, you can be declared righteous by God. Do you know what Paul says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5? He says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to be sin. In other words, Jesus was sinless, but God considered our sin his. And when Jesus dies on the cross, he's considered the sinner that we all are. And he's taking the judgment of God on himself. He made him to be sin who knew no sin. So what happens? So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Which means not only can you be forgiven of all your sin, you can be declared righteous. The righteousness of God can be yours. Not kind of righteous, not sort of righteous, not pretty much righteous, but the righteousness of God can be yours. And you can be completely forgiven. I think Satan has two basic lies. I think he tells non-Christians, you're good, you're fine. You know, if, you, if you'll figure it out, just look inside yourself. All the answers are there. Work off your own sin for yourself. You're good. How, how, how dare those Christians tell you you're not just a good, not nice, good person. Look how good and nice you are. And as soon as somebody says, no, you're a liar, I need a savior, Jesus is that savior, and they become a Christian, I think he flips his tactics. You know what he starts saying? You're not good. You're not okay. I know Jesus said it's finished, but come on, you're a self-respecting American. Hey, earn it, prove it, demonstrate it. Make yourself worthy of it. And that's the opposite of grace. And so he just flips his tactic. And we need to come right back at him when he lies to us. He's called the accuser of the brethren because we have union with Christ. You know how Martin Luther put it? He said that because of our faith in Jesus and our union with him, a man with confidence can say, Martin Luther said, that mine are Christ's doing, living, speaking, dying and suffering just as much as if I had lived, done, spoken, suffered, and died as he did. Luther says, just as a bridegroom possesses all that is his bride's and she all that is his, because they have all things in common. Well, so Christ and the church are one spirit and, and, and one in spirit. And so we have everything of Christ. So when Satan lies to you and haunts you with your sin and accuses you of things you've done that have been forgiven in Christ and accuses you of things you haven't done is trying to make you believe you've done so he can accuse you and heap sin and shame and guilt on you. You need to say to him what Spurgeon teaches us to say. Charles Spurgeon said, I know what the devil will say to you. He'll tell you you're a sinner. Tell him you know you are. But for all that, you're made righteous. He'll tell you of the greatness of your sin. Tell him of the greatness of Christ's righteousness. He'll tell you of all your mishaps, your backslidings, and your wanderings. Tell him. Spurgeon says, and tell your own conscience that you know all that. And although your sin be great, Christ Jesus came to save sinners and is quite able to put all that away. I want you to trust Jesus and live in the freedom he brings, not the weary burden of trying to carry sin that he's already carried for you. Jesus really is enough. Jesus meets all our greatest needs. You know, we adopted our four kids. Could, could we see that picture of my family again? Guys, the, the yeah. So my daughter, Caroline, was the first, the first child we adopted when she was eight years old. She was living in an orphanage in Taiwan. And if you met Caroline when she was eight, and if you meet her today, you will come away saying, she's only 4'11". 
And she doesn't even weigh 100 pounds, but she's got 300 pounds of personality and some serious swag. She, she comes across as so confident. We picked her up at the orphanage, and my nickname for her was the mayor, because she walked around Taipei like she owned the place. It was unbelievable. This little eight-year-old girl. And we brought her home, and man, she had swag, and she would just walk up to people and didn't know barely any English, and she talked to them. Well, I will never forget, though, the first time we went to church. We explained to her, and she understood. We explained to her, we're going to go away. In two hours, we'll be back home, honey. You're our daughter. This is forever. You're not an orphan anymore. You're, our, you're a Tanis. You're our child. This is for life. This is forever. And then we all got in the car, and she wasn't there. And we waited and waited and waited, and finally, she came out of the house. And she had in her arms everything that she could possibly carry that she owned. Her favorite stuffed animals, food, a change of clothes, all, all, all the hair clips she used to put in her hair, all the things that she felt like she did not want to leave behind just in case we didn't come back. Just in case this wasn't really home for good. And she got in the back of the car and she almost filled the back seat with all this stuff. And we said to her, honey, we're coming back in two hours. You don't need any of that. And I'll never forget her face. She didn't even say anything. She just gave us a look that said, I know you said that, but I'm not taking any chances. And it took a long time. It's still a work in progress for Caroline to believe that she's as loved as she really is. And I think that's true of all of us. We all were orphans before God forgave us and adopted us as his children. And so in many ways, being a Christian is learning every day, I'm not an orphan anymore. I'm a child of God. And that's not going to change. God's the one who did this. I didn't do this. God's the one who's forgiven me in Christ. I, he, I can't be unforgiven because Jesus did this for me. God's the one who's declared me righteous. And then we can walk in the freedom that brings. But so many of us, even those who've trusted Christ, and are free. We walk around with all this stuff in our arms. A lot of it is just this image we're trying to project on social media all the time, or even here on this campus. Instead of walking around in the freedom and the confidence and the boldness, knowing I'm a child of God, and I'm loved by him in Christ, and he can't love me more than he does. Oh, I pray that, you'll, that we'll all be able to let go of all the things we think we need to carry around and drag around in this life that we can be freed from, whether that's sin or image maintenance or trying to prove anything or demonstrate our worthiness. The news is you're not worthy. But God loves us out of his grace, not our worthiness. And he makes us able to be his children that will be glorified with him when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your amazing grace. Thank you for each young lady and man in this room. Lord, I thank you that you brought them here. It's not a coincidence to this school, to this week, to this very meeting, to have this great time of worship and to hear from your word. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us, most certainly myself included, I pray we would all understand what really matters and what doesn't, and we wouldn't squander our lives on things that don't matter, and that we would rest in the finished work of Jesus. And anyone here this morning, this afternoon, Lord, who doesn't know you, who's never come to true saving faith in Christ, I pray this would be the day. They wouldn't go home today 
without knowing they have a relationship with you through your son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Can we say thank you to Dr. Thomas? Thank you.